Hear now the word of God. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law, in some translations, the scribes, and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, meaning Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of God. Won't you be seated? During COVID, I found, uh, I, I mistakenly found a, a, a television program that I had never watched before. And uh, I understand some of you have watched it. It's called uh, uh, The Antiques Roadshow. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you want to sit through very long because, honestly, it's the most boring show on TV. But every once in a while, um, I noticed on the program that someone had found something or bought something on a garage sale for peanuts, maybe 10 cents or something like that. And they bring it to these professional uh, people who are able to, to research it and date it and find out that this thing they bought for 10 cents in a yard sale is actually worth about $3,000. And you can always be surprised because the woman or the man who's bought the thing thinks, well, maybe it's worth something, but I don't know how much it's worth, and maybe they'll tell us. And so one of the things that really surprised me is on this dull, boring show, one of the older women of the show had brought one of the paintings that she founded, and she actually found it was one by one of the most famous painters of the last era. And what she bought literally for $10 in a yard sale was worth something like $50,000. And I thought, how weird. I was also disturbed because I noticed that they had some albums that someone had brought from the early 1960s, the Beatles albums, and they were the original copies 
um, that were first printed, and they were worth more money than you can imagine. I had begged my wife to throw away all of her albums when we got married because she had saved them all, and I found out now that we probably could have paid for a trip to, to Europe somewhere by selling those. <laughs> well, why do I go through all that this morning? Well, it's simply this. The, the book you have in your hand, the Bible, is one of the most treasured possessions in the entire globe. But by holding it this morning, you don't know that. You see, you and I as Americans, we have more than one copy. You probably have as many as six somewhere laying around your house. But if you knew what was behind it, you would have greater respect for it because one of the things that has been clear in my life is as I've asked the question, can I trust this book? Is it really giving me truth? Is it accurate? One of the things that astounds me is that this book is a result, this English Bible you have in front of you, is a result of generations of people who have preserved and transferred it from one copy to another by hand or by print. And in doing so, throughout the time of the, of the writing of this, from the very time that John penned this gospel, the gospel of John we read from, we have copies upon copies upon copies upon copies. Have any of y'all heard of the Bible Museum in, in Washington, D.C.? If you would go to there and take a tour through that, it would give you a greater appreciation of the volumes of, of uh, copies that we have of the Old and New Testament and how those copies upon copies upon copies represent for us an accuracy that has been astounding through the ages that this message has been delivered one generation to another, never faltering to be recopied in such a way that the book you have before you is as close as is humanly possible to the original articles that were written. In fact, there is more evidence that what you have in your hands is almost exactly what was written than the Shakespeare plays that we, in, that we still entertain ourselves with today. What do I mean by that? Well, if we were to take all the copies of the Shakespeare plays that have, been, that have been preserved since Shakespeare wrote his plays, we would probably have a stack about that tall of paper. But if we were to take all the copies of the things that have been written concerning the Bible and the copies of copies of copies that have been handed down or preserved, you would have to literally see a stack that would reach the top of the ceiling. Does that give you a good, a good comparison? And so when you come then to a, pa a passage like this, one of the things that has happened over the time is that this particular passage we read that deals with trying to entrap Jesus from John chapter 8 is a section of scripture, verses 1 through 11, that does not appear in the original earliest manuscripts we have of John's gospel. Am, am I making this clear? In other words, the earliest copies we have of the gospel of John, going back generations, there are no indications that this story was included. 
And so scholars have wrestled with why is this? What's going on? And so in looking at this, we have what we call textual critics who were scholars who devote themselves to studying the way in which the Greek, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in, the way in which the Greek is expressed. And they're trying to figure out, okay, if this is a section that was not included in the earliest manuscripts, why was it not included? Because we don't have the original Gospel of John. We don't have the paper or the parchment that John wrote on. We don't have that one. We only have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And so the scholars, as they have debated this, they have, they have basically tried to come up with some reasoning of how we should treat this text. The newest NIV, the newest NIV print that is out, doesn't even include this story in the Bible. And you kind of go, why? And it's because it's not in the earliest manuscripts, and therefore those scholars believe with all their heart that maybe this story was not originally part of John's gospel. Some, like the RSV, maybe others like the ESV versions, they put in big, bold text that this story may not be in the, or is not in the original, earliest manuscripts that we have. And so because of that, they give us a warning that the story itself, we are not sure if John included it in his original gospel. Some manuscripts, some of the early manuscripts, the earliest, earliest copies of not just John but of the Gospels do include this story, for instance, after Luke 21, verse 38. So this story is in a section of Luke that was part of a codex or a, a source that goes back. There's also other witnesses, meaning other manuscripts, that place it after uh, chapter 7, verse 44, or maybe after verse 36. And then there's one that even, or a couple of that may be even included after chapter 21, verse 25. And so the question then becomes, can we really trust what we just read to be the word of God? And the answer is yes. You say, why? If it's not in the earliest manuscripts, then how do we know this happened? And it's for this reason. There can be little doubt that though it may not have been included in the Gospel of John, it is a story that survived from the early church and that because it did survive, there is reason to believe that it was a real incident in Jesus' life. Not only that, there are parallels to this kind of thing in the other Gospels where the Pharisees and the scribes were looking for ways for Jesus to be tricked. They were actually looking for ways to entrap him. Numerous places you see this kind of hatred of the Pharisees and scribes. And the question then becomes, then why did they hate Jesus so much? Because he did not teach the scriptures like they did. What do you mean he didn't teach like they did? Well, he, he, he certainly did follow their pattern the setting of it is set for us in that passage where Jesus has gone into the temple and he's teaching. He is doing the kind of work that the scribes would do. The scribes were like the lawyers. Do you, have you ever needed a lawyer? Uh, they're they're, they're ind indispensable. I, I know we, there's a lot of lawyer jokes out there, right? You probably know a couple. 
But when it comes to legal matters, why do we hire a lawyer? Because we want to make sure that what is worded is actually precise and clear. And so in the temple, the scribes would come and they would bring their tutors or their teacher or their students and they would teach them the scriptures. They would open the scriptures and begin to teach their students in the temple the word of God. And as they would do that, they would expound and they would expand that teaching so that those students would hear God's word and absorb it. Jesus was doing the very same thing. If you look and look very carefully, you'll see in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, that Jesus had gathered in the temple court. That's what he's doing. He's gathering there for the purpose of teaching God's word. And you say, well, what would, Je what would Jesus be teaching well, obviously, it was a way of teaching that really disturbed the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Why would it discourage them? Why would it disturb them? Because here's how Jesus taught the Old Testament law. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have looked at another woman with lust, you have already broken the commandment. No scribe would teach that way. Not one. This is why they hated him. Because Jesus not only gave the text of the law, he gave its meaning and brought it home. Now immediately we begin to think, okay, whew, that's great. Do not commit adultery. Uh, we were talking with some of the youth this past year on the Ten Commandments and we got to the to that commandment that says, do not commit adultery. And I said, have any of y'all committed adultery? And one of them said, well, I'm not even married yet. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a great way to interpret that, right? That's how we do today in our culture. We assume that if we, do, if we commit adultery, it must be because we have, um, we have become a married person and we have become married in such a way that we, uh, we, uh, we would never cheat on our spouse. But remember what Jesus said? If you've looked at another person in lust, what have you done? Is there anyone here that hasn't done that? Hear what the Old Testament law says concerning this. It says that if a man in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. How would that go over today in America? I remember listening to Laura Schlesinger. Do you remember her, Laura Schlesinger? She was not a Christian. She was a devout Jew. But she had a, a wonderful program that she had on the air, on the radio. And, and she talked about life from the perspective of God's law. And I will never forget, as I was listening to her program, a woman called in and said, Dr. Laura, I have, a, I have an ethical dilemma. And the woman said, well, honey, I'm so glad you called. What can I, how can I help you? What's the problem? She says, I have a friend 
who has come to me and confided with me that she is in an affair with someone's husband and her husband doesn't know. And I don't know what to do. And Dr. Laura said, well, honey, do you want to do what's right or what's convenient? And the woman said, well, I want to do what's right. And I said, she said, then that's easy. Here's what you must do. You must go to this friend of yours who's told you that she's having an affair, and you must tell her that you are surprised that she would tell you this because you now have to go with her and while she tells her husband what she's done, you must stand beside her. And on radio, the, the radio went blank. It was kind of like one of those moments when you're on the web and everything freezes up. You know, you, you want to take your computer and go, yeah, complete silence. And the woman finally responds and says, well, Dr. Laura, can I do what's convenient? And I thought to myself, what would it be like if we followed the law of God? How would America be changed overnight? You see, if we admit to ourselves that all of us are adulterous, but we know that God said you shall not commit adultery, then the question comes, how do we resolve this problem? And there is the setting for the conflict. If you look in verse 5, it tells us really quite surprisingly that in the midst of Jesus' teaching and expounding, teaching like you find in chapter 5 of Matthew, you have heard it said, but I say to you, the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers come in and they say, Teacher, we have a woman caught in adultery. And in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now here's the dilemma. Here's the tremendous dilemma. You see, it really does say that. In fact, in, if you go back to Deuteronomy verse cha chapter 22, verse 23, it says, if a, if a man happens to meet a virgin pledged to be married, this is someone who's engaged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The young woman should be stoned. Why? Because she did not scream for help. And the man, because he violated another man's wife. She's not even married yet. She's betrothed. And he, God says, you must purge the evil from you. And so from the story, what we gather is that this woman was engaged to be married. In other places of the law, it does not specifically say that those caught in adultery should be stoned. It should, says they should be, they should be, um, they should be, they should perish. They should die for their sins. That's how serious this was to God. Many people have understood that death to be by strangulation, by hanging, which explains some of the early laws of the United States when people were caught in adulterous situations, they would be hung. 
Well, then the question then becomes, well, how does Jesus deal with the conflict? You see, the real conflict comes because now that Jesus has taught and publicly come before people telling them this law that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, you shall not look lustfully at a woman. How then does he deal with this when they've actually caught some woman in adulterous affair? What do you do? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, as, as the scriptures tell us, is that they brought this thing before Jesus. They brought this woman and made her stand in front of them to trap Jesus. They did not care about the woman. So what were they after? They were simply after this. They were out to make sure that Jesus was disgraced. And here how they, here's how they were going to do it. If Jesus disavowed the law of Moses, then they could go as lawyers throughout the country and say, Jesus is a fraud. He doesn't believe in the law of God. He doesn't uphold it. He's a sinner. And by doing that, they could drive away his followers and make an accusation that they could prove was a truth that Jesus said, don't worry about the law of Moses. It doesn't matter anymore. On the other side, if he upheld the law of Moses, then he becomes suspect to people who have heard his teaching because they have heard him tell them that they are adulterous, but there is a graceful way that God can help deal with their adultery and save them from their sins. And it is to believe in him and follow him. But there's a third way that they were trying to trap Jesus. And that was if Jesus took it into his own hands and if he picked up a stone himself and stoned the woman, he would be violating the Roman law, which gave an absolute that only Rome could take life. They were the law. They were the judge. They were the executioner. And so regardless how Jesus responded, whether he just disavowed Moses' law and be shown to be a fraud, whether he upheld the law and said, nope, she, she should be stoned, then he would discount the teaching he gave in Matthew 5 through 7 where he talks about those who are poor in spirit can find forgiveness and they can be reconciled to God through belief in him. Or the Romans could take him and execute him. Whatever way Jesus responded, the lawyers were going to win. They had him. They had him. And there we come to Jesus' response. He bends down and he writes on the ground. I wish I could share with you the volumes that have been written to explain what Jesus wrote on the ground. Uh, do you have another hour? Because I can only cut, cover about half of it. Let me tell you, we don't know what he wrote on the ground. And anyone who tells you they do, run and carry your wallet with you. They don't know. Nobody does. But he stoops on the ground and writes in his in the ground with his finger. And then finally, after the lawyers would not relent, they were pressing, they were pushing, they were demanding because they hated him so much. 
Give us a response. He then stands up and he says in verse 7, here it is. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is not saying, if any of you is sinless, you can pick up a stone. Jesus is not saying, if you've pretty much obeyed nine of the Ten Commandments, you can pick up a stone. He's saying, any one of you who accuses her has not partaken in the sin of bringing her before me and accusing her, you can pick up the stone. And there the trap is sprung because the law of Moses says, what? Go back to chapter 22. The woman and the man must be brought forward and both of them must perish for the evil must be purged from God's people. Where's the man? Where is he? And it is for that reason that the scribes and the Pharisees, and I love the way this is, they begin to walk away one by one. Do you know who's the first? The one with the grayest hair. Why? Why the one with the grayest hair? He's the one with the lawyer with the most experience. And he realizes... He's broken the law. He's deserving of death. You see, anyone who made an accusation and stoned someone knowing that they were innocent or they were not fully guilty, if they had stoned this woman without the man there, they would by association be guilty of the adultery that they accuse her of and they would have to relinquish their life they would have to perish because why they're perpetuating a lie was deserving of God's punishment it had to be purged from God's people I wonder what it would be like if our nation not only was purged from adultery, what if our nation was purged from lying? What would the news be at night? Do you hear it? But here's the dilemma. You and I are that woman. Because even though she was brought alone before Jesus, she was still as guilty as any of us of violating the law of God. She was an adulterer. And for those of you who think that you've lived a good moral life, your morality cannot compare to the morality of Jesus Christ. For he lived a perfect, sinless life. And it 
fulfilled God's law. That's what we, we understand about Christ's sacrifice on the cross is Christ was able to die for us in our sins because he lived a life perfect before God. He was sinless and gave himself as the sinless one for your sins on the cross so that by paying the penalty of your sin, you are able to be forgiven. Well, here's the real power of this passage. Even though John may not have written it, and though there is evidence to say it truly happened, here are some things for us to really contemplate as we go through this. That as Jesus responds to these people, this woman caught in adultery, as he deals with the law of Moses, as he deals with the scribes, as he gives the response, he gives a response to the woman that is more powerful than to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says... Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. By the way, the NIV has that so much more accurately from the Greek than any other translation. Go and leave your life of sin. I love that, don't you? What is she supposed to do? She's supposed to be changed in that moment. She's supposed to realize what what Christ is doing for her is not something she deserves. Nor is she the victim of someone else's entrapment. She is guilty just as much as any adulteress would be. But in that moment where he says, I will no longer condemn you, he doesn't do that because of some innate goodness that she has in her life. It's because of what he will do on the cross for her and for you. You see, this is the love of God that is in Christ Jesus That he gave himself for you, for your sin. And in doing so, he paid its penalty in full. So that as you turn and believe in Christ, you stand before him as if you've never committed adultery. And immediately you feel yourself unworthy, don't you? I am unworthy of this love. I am unworthy of this grace. And if you understand that, you cannot leave this place in the same way you came. Because you've you've encountered Jesus. You've met him face to face. Here's some things to think about as you go from here. There is no lukewarm decision concerning Jesus. You cannot leave here today. And say, well, that's a wonderful story. Jesus is a good man. Let me tell you, if you believe only that Jesus is a good man, you are putting yourself in a category of a liar because no good man would claim to be the Son of God. No good teacher would be able to say, I forgive your sins, as he did to a paralytic earlier in the Gospel of John. No good man would deceive people in believing that he is something he is not. And so if you're a person here who says, well, I believe that Jesus is a good man, but not my Savior, then you are regulating yourself to someone who is still under the condemnation of your sin. Because you have not believed in him, you have simply given him an accolade of being something of a a moral teacher. There is no lukewarmness here. This is the whole point of John's gospel. 
That as you read these scriptures, as you take them in and understand Christ's words for your life, you must make a decision. Will I follow Christ and repent of my sins or will I go my way? And the most amazing thing in that point of decision is it is your decision. No one else's. You cannot play the game in Christianity we play where we compare our righteousness to each other and say, well, oh, I'm a better Christian than someone else because I do this and this and this. No, we are either those who need to be forgiven and are or those who refuse to be forgiven and walk away. The second thing that's important about passages like this in the New Testament is that Jesus did not come to condemn. Now get this. This is so powerful. He did not come in that way to condemn this woman to the fate that she had made for herself. Not that she was a victim of, but the fate that she had created for herself. Jesus did not come to condemn her. Then what did he come to do? He came to save her. Isn't that glorious? He came to save, not to condemn. This is why Paul writes in that beautiful passage in Romans 8. He says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because they are in Christ. They have seen their sins as God has revealed it. They have acknowledged it before God, repented and believed in Christ who was the sacrifice for their sins. And now because of that sacrifice, the cross is that covering where we are no longer condemned. And in that condemnation, even when we are, it cannot stand because Christ has paid the price and it's full. Isn't that gloriously powerful? Let me ask you, have you been listening to the devil as a believer where you feel like you're still condemned when he has freed you? Are you not walking in the joy of your salvation and realizing that God has freed you from the dominion of sin and transferred you into his kingdom of light and all made possible through his cross for you? The third thing that's so powerful about this is where Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. What is he saying there? That she's never going to sin again? No, no, no. Some of you grew up Methodist. Do you know what Methodism started as? When the Holy Spirit brought repentance upon this nation and upon the Great Britain, it brought such a presence of our sin before God, people began to cry out to God and beg God, say, God, please forgive me of my sins. Please forgive me. And a great awakening happened. The gospel began to spread like wildfire around the country. People began believing in Christ. And there began a movement that basically said there's a method of putting off sin and putting on righteousness. And Methodism in its infancy, not today, but in its infancy, was a faith that said if we study the scriptures hard enough, if we pray hard enough, if we earnestly seek God hard enough, we can come to a state in this life where we have no more sinful impulses. There was a method of becoming holy. That only lasted a generation. Do you know why? Because no one is sinless. 
Well, then what's the quandary? How do, then do we live a life? We live a life of repentance and faith. What does that mean? We acknowledge our sins before God. As Logan was preaching or praying this morning, what did he do? He led us in a time of confession. Why do we need to confess? Because we know in our hearts there are things that we have withheld from God. And as we come and we clean our conscience before God, as we lift up our sins before him, as we say, I believe what you did for me in the cross, Jesus cleanses again. And he frees you. And he sends you out once more. Renewed. Refreshed. This is why worship is so important. It's not that you come and hear a great, pre a great sermon from a bald-headed preacher. That's not it. It's that you encounter the living God and that you come before him with honesty and integrity and you begin to confess to him your need of his salvation, that salvation that is at work in you, wooing you from the sinfulness of the world to a, a love for him. And let me ask you, where is your love? The first of the year, we were having a Bible study on Wednesday morning, and I started asking the question to people as they come. I would say, well, so I know how to pray for you. Let me ask you, where are you in your walk with Christ? And they would look at me like, uh-oh, what, what are you doing? I'd say, well, let's use the, let's use the basketball imagery. Are, are, you, are you in the game? Do you feel like your relationship with Christ is that you're in the game? Or are you on the bench? ready to get into the game or are you in in the stands watching the game someone said to me well honestly I feel like I'm in the parking lot outside of the game and I said why and he said I I don't know but I don't feel close to God and I thought to myself oh my isn't that the challenge of our life as Christians You see, to leave your life of sin is to leave a life that says you can do it on your own. I don't need Jesus. To leave a life of sin is to say, I don't need God. Don't we sing that in a hymn somewhere? I need thee every Easter and Christmas? No. I need thee every hour. The most amazing thing, isn't it? And you know the saddest part is, I don't know about you, but I'm like a Pharisee. I can know God's word. I can know his law. I can look at people down my nose and condemn them because they don't do what's right. And I don't even look at my own heart. You see, there, there's why I need God. Finally, this morning, as you look at this passage, you begin to realize that anyone who's rejecting Jesus is condemned already. That ought to frighten anyone. If the law says this, or you die, and I do this, and I deserve death, and God offers me this gift of salvation by turning and believing in Christ and following him, and I say, nah, I'm, I'm not interested. I actually had a person do that. I was sharing with them the gospel, and I said, do you understand this? And they go, yeah, I do. 
I said, would you like to receive Christ? And he goes, no. And I said, why? And he said, I'm in a relationship right now with a woman that I just don't want to give up. And I know it's wrong. And I thought, well, at least he's honest. But by doing that, he was condemned already. This is the gospel that we preach. You as a human being have fallen short of the glory of God. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. You have broken God's law. You are deserving of his punishment. There's nothing you can give in a defense. You cannot blame someone else for what you have done. And if it were to end today that we would stand before God, you would stand before him with no recourse but to try to defend yourself against a holy God in knowing all the things you have done in your life that have violated his law. What chance do you have? But here Jesus says, if you repent, Acknowledge what is honestly true about yourself to God. Cry out to him for forgiveness. And endeavor to turn your life in a direction of following after Christ. I will forgive you, come into you, and transform your life. Would you like to do that? You can. He, he's been here the whole hour we have been worshiping. Did you hear me? He has been here the whole hour that we have been worshiping together. He desires, he loves you. He wants the, your invitation to come in. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father and our God, as we bow before you, forgive us in those moments when we have thought of ourselves as being morally pure. Somehow we were better than others and that made us righteous before you. We ask, O oh holy God, that you would turn our hearts unto Jesus so that we would begin to take hold of that life that you offer, that you are teaching us through the Gospel of John. That life is in Jesus. It is in drawing from him the power to live. It is in casting all of ourself upon him who is able to do far more than we think. It is literally the open invitation that we have no ability, no recourse, no solution to the problems of our lives, only Christ and Him alone. If you have never received Christ this morning, it's a, it is a very, very personal thing. You have to come to Him. You must ask Him. And it's a simple, simple process of reaching out like a beggar to bread and saying, Lord Jesus... I acknowledge who I am before you. I, I pray that you would not only forgive me, but now 
Turn me from my life and help me now to follow you. If you pray that kind of prayer, God says, I will come into you and I will change the course of your life. It's that simple. And if you prayed that prayer, we would love to know about it so that we can give you some material to begin that journey of walking with Christ each day. We pray that as Kids Weeks begins to come together, that you would use that message of the gospel not only to transform, trans, transform the life of children, but parents who are on the brink of divorce, of broken families that have no other hope except that someone would come and give them good news. We pray, God, that you would allow us to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because right now in our country, the divisions we have is a division on how a human being is going to solve our problems and only God, you can do this. Only you can change us as a nation to loving what is pure and right before you. Hear us, we pray humbly. We ask it in the name of Christ our Lord. And the people of God said together, Amen.